Welcome to the sermon podcast of First Church of Christ, where our goal is to lead generations into a life-changing, ever-growing relationship with Jesus Christ. We pray that you are encouraged and challenged by today's message. Well, good morning, church. How are we doing today? We good? <laughs> okay, some of those are good. Okay. If you're online joining us, welcome. My name is Mike. If you guys don't know who I am, I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and I'm, uh, I'm, I'm pretty excited to be up here today. I'm, I'm usually in a different capacity of uh, being up here playing the guitar and singing, and, uh, but we're fortunate enough here to have uh, some really talented and gifted individuals who are, can come up here, and, and uh, I don't have to be up here, which is, you know, it's really great. It's really for a, a blessing for our, our small community to have something like that. So let's give them a round of applause. I always like to, to recognize the fact that we have a lot of really uh, gifted and servant-hearted uh, individuals here. So thank you guys for doing what you do, and thank you, everybody, for being here. So I remember it like it was yesterday. You see, it was my junior year of high school. I had just started um, searching for where I was going to be going to college. And luckily for me, I, was, uh, I played baseball. I was, I was halfway decent at it. And uh, I had some colleges that were looking at me, so I had plenty of choices of places that I could go. And um, one of the great things about that is that I was able to go and visit some of these schools, and a few of them, a small select few, I was able to go visit them on their own dime uh, on this thing called an official visit. But the thing about an official visit is that you only have a certain amount of them that you can actually use before the... NCAA gets mad at you, and you can't play baseball anymore. And so I had to choose wisely. And I decided to go on at least a few local trips, because I had, you know, I had some, some schools that were close by, you know, a couple hours away. I could go home and have mom do my laundry on the weekends. Uh, and I, but I had one school in particular that I was pretty interested in, and this school was about 13 hours away of a drive in Louisiana. Um, and I was actually pretty excited about that one. It's actually the college I wound up going to. Um, but it had a few of, uh, a few things that appealed to me. Uh, first off, it was down south. Uh, warmer weather. I, I know I live in northeast Indiana, but I do not like snow. Um, it was a warmer climate. There was uh, a better opportunity for me to go off on my own and do the things that I wanted to do, uh, grow up a little bit because I needed to, still need to grow up a little bit. Um, but, you know, so I had this chance to potentially go to college in Louisiana, and I wanted to go. So before I knew it, I was on a plane headed to Louisiana. And as we landed in a little town, or I think it's more of a town, but called Monroe, Louisiana, which I don't know if any of you have ever heard of that. Um, I was looking out the window, and it was dark, and I really couldn't see much. I was like, okay, this is cool. But So the coach comes, and he picks me and my dad up, and we take the 30-minute trek back to Ruston, Louisiana, where the, the college was at. And I uh, stop at this nice restaurant, and we sit down for dinner. And, of course, you know, I, I ordered the most expensive steak meal that you can, because I could. Uh, <laughs> And we're conversing, we're having a great time, we're talking, I'm, I'm really enjoying my steak, um, we're enjoying each other's company. Um, the meal goes off without a hitch, and the coach at the end of it says, hey, um, before we take you guys back to your hotel, I want to stop by the field really fast, I got a couple of things I need to grab for that'll help us out for tomorrow. Like, okay, cool, and he's like, oh, while you're there, you, know, you can check out the field. Cool. And so we do that, we're, we're heading up, and we're driving up to the stadium, and I say stadium, because... 
Uh, I came, my high school that I was at was a kind of a smaller country high school. We were lucky to have like maybe one bleacher. And so the fact that we were pulling up to the stadium that I was going to get the potential to play in, I was like, this is really cool. I was starting to think about all the really cool things that I was going to be able to do, um, kind of dreaming already. So start there. And we pull up, put the car in park, walk in. He unlocks the gate, and he goes to his office, and as he goes there, he goes, Hey, hey, if you guys want to go up there up the stairs, you can go check out the field while we're all, uh, while I'm getting my thing. I'm like, okay. So my dad and I walk up the stairs, and, and as we're kind of squinting and see the silhouette of a field, we're like, we could tell one thing, that this was actually a really nice field, too. So the stadium was nice. The field was nice. Everything was really nice. Squinting, and all of a sudden, that's when we heard the click, 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 and this buzzing sound. And instantly, all the lights on the, in the stadium turned on. And the field was instantly illuminated. And I felt like I was in a movie. And looked over at my dad. He had the same reaction that I had, which was like this. Couldn't believe that this was happening. And so we continue on. And we're just kind of looking and pointing out, looking around the stadium, how nice it is. The coach, of course, rounds the corner with his big old grin on his face because he knows exactly what he just did. He's like, he's like, well, do you guys want to check out the field? He's like, sure, let's go. So we're taken out uh, to the field. And what happened next is something that, you know, I don't remember a lot of, like, what happened during that visit. I don't remember a ton of the things uh, that were said. But I do remember the next thing that was said. And so what the coach did was he took me out uh, to the pitching mound. So for reference, I was a pitcher, so this is where I would have been playing. Um, so he took me out to the pitching mound and takes me, grabs me by the shoulder goes, in his thick southern draw. says, Mike, you think you can get people out up here? Yes, sir. I think I can do that. <laughs> but for me, this was, um, this was just a moment that it kind of was like a culmination of, of everything that I had been working for. This is what, I, what, what I'm going to call today is my mountaintop moment. Right, even though I was on a pitcher's mound, that's beside the point. But this was my mountaintop moment. This is everything that I had been working for, all of my dreams and everything. And I had my coach with this hand on my shoulder saying, "This uh, this can all be yours." And now, um, you know, this, so this was my mountaintop moment. But and it was amazing, and I couldn't believe that this was happening to me. And I, but I think the thing that we need to think about is that we all have these mountaintop moments, right? I mean, it could be finally getting that promotion at work that you've been working so hard for. Uh, you know, all getting all the recognition you deserve. It could be uh, winning the biggest game of the year if you're an athlete or uh, the biggest track meet. It could be finally reaching retirement. It could be having your first grandkid. It could be having your first kid. Uh, it could be, you know, finally getting this thing, whatever that thing is for you that you've desired for years and years and years and years, and you finally have it, and you're on the mountaintop. What an achievement I did. How, look how awesome I am. You know, whatever it is, we all, we all have those moments, and, and today we're going to be talking about a mountaintop moment that Jesus had. Uh, you know, and here's the thing about Jesus' mountaintop moment, is that he was offered everything that he had ever wanted, everything that was rightfully his, and he was even, but he was offered it without having to do all the hard work of getting it. But the thing that is so true about Jesus, and that the thing that that we, you know, that he hardly ever does, is he hardly ever does anything that we expect him to do. Like 
he was expected to be the king and conquer the Romans, but that's not what he did. He died on a cross, right? Jesus hardly ever does anything that we expect him to do, at least in our human ways, in our ways that we think. But here's what we need to understand is that this is something that we can learn from Jesus. So when we are offered something that is too good to be true, what is it? It's too good to be true. I mean, think of that one. All right, let's just go on a journey together. Think of that one thing that you're years away from having, that you're years away from having. Somebody offers it to you today. What's your response? What do you do? You say something along the lines of, well, that sounds great, but what's the catch? What do I have to do? It's too good to be true. And if it's too good to be true, let me ask you this. Why do so many of us fall into that trap and we, we think that we can have it right away? Why do so many of us stop at nothing to get what we want, leaving a trail of destruction behind us, if that's the case? Maybe that's not you. I know that was me. I know that that was me. And I can tell you that after my mountaintop moment, I went on to sign at that college, of course. I went on to pursue a career in baseball, and I went on to pursue the lifestyle that the world was telling me that me as a baseball player is, can live. Um, I deserved it because I worked so hard for it. You know, I, I, I went on to do a lot of things, to pursue a lot of things, and I went on to worship a lot of things that were not God. And then that's the thing that makes us, uh, this third temptation of Jesus, so tricky for us today is that, you know, oftentimes we look at this third temptation where, and we're going to look at it later, but where Jesus talks about, or where the devil offers him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And we disassociate ourselves with it because like clearly nobody will ever offer us that. But we kind of miss the point after that of that is that if Satan is after Jesus's worship, he's after ours too, especially as us being Christ followers. So um, before we get too far along, I want to talk about that word that I just said, worship. And I want to give you a bit of a disclaimer. It's it's something to remember as we continue on today. So worship is not just us coming here, going through the worship service, singing songs, praising God, hearing a halfway decent message by me, uh, remembering Jesus and his sacrifice through communion. Worship is... Sure, that's part of worship. Worship isn't just us going out in nature and taking a hike and recognizing the splendor and the wonder of God and who he is. It's part of worship. But worship is deeper than that. So much deeper than we can ever imagine because of one thing that we have to remember is that we are worshiping beings. As human beings, we were created to worship the creator. And we have believed this lie that if one of the things we believe is that we work hard enough, if we have enough ambition, that we'll get everything that we have ever deserved. We start worshiping other things other than God. And then in turn, when we achieve that goal, we start worshiping ourselves. You know, that's one of the things about living where we live is we actually do have a better chance of that because being Americans, right, we we have these um, certain unalienable rights, right, that are given to us. And if we just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and work hard enough, we'll get everything that we've ever wanted. We'll even start to believe that we are worthy of worship. See, as, as Christ followers, we started to make secondary issues primary issues. 
secondary issue, like, for example, personal preference is a secondary issue. We started to do that. We've even started, to, we've even gone as far as to believing that we, uh, as we as being the church of Jesus, can be his disciple and only spend an hour and a half with him a week. See, all of these examples and more only scratch the surface of this war that we are in, of this, of this spiritual war that maybe we don't see it, but we're in it. And make no mistake, friends, the war that we are fighting is one that has eternal consequences. It's something that is so much bigger than we can ever imagine. It's something that, that's been raging here on earth ever since Adam and Eve walked on it. And that's why today as we look at this third temptation of Jesus and Matthew, I wanted us to, to look at it from a lens of worship. Specifically to whom we are worshiping, but also to who deserves our worship. Now, the answer to that should be obvious, but it's not that simple, right? It's not that simple. Luckily, we have an example in, a, in Jesus and how he resisted the devil and defeated Satan. But the one thing that I want us to remember today as we, as we engage into this is that when Jesus told Satan to go away, like he did, which we'll read here in a minute, he did go away, but only for a little bit. For Jesus' entire time that he was on earth, Satan tried again and again and again to get Jesus off of his mission, to get Jesus to do something outside of his character. And again and again, Jesus won every battle, including the ultimate battle, which where he defeated sin and death. So let's go ahead, and we're going to open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. Uh, we're going to be start out in verse 8 today. Um, <clears throat> so if you haven't been here with us the past couple of weeks, we've been looking at the story of Jesus and his journey in the desert. But right before his journey in the desert, uh, Jesus is at the, at the Jordan, and, and his cousin John is there baptizing people. And Jesus goes, hey, I want you to baptize me. And he's like, I don't know if that's such a good idea. You should baptize me. And he goes, no, I want you to baptize me. So Jesus gets baptized. And upon coming up out of the water, the Holy Spirit descends on him in the form of a dove. And God says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. And let me ask you, have you, have you ever had a moment like that? And I'm not talking like where God audibly was like, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased, but have you ever had a moment like that where this mountaintop moment that we've been talking about, this, this thing that this ultimate culmination of all your work, have you ever had a moment like that? What was the first thing you did when that moment happened? Well, I know what I would do is I would pull out my cell phone and I would call all my friends or I'll probably call my wife first because I'd get in trouble if I didn't do that. But I would call her and then I'd call everybody and I'd tell, I'd tell all my friends and everything about this awesome achievement that I did. I'd get on, probably get on Facebook or something or Instagram or anything on social media and I would post about this awesome thing that just happened to me. I'd go out for some celebratory dinner where we would you know, talk about this awesome opportunity or this awesome thing that we have achieved. We would celebrate and talk about it over and over again. We would go out of our way so that everyone would see and everyone would know about this thing. There's nothing wrong with that, by the way. That's okay. Jesus did something different, though. 
We don't see him doing that. Now, and I would like to point out that if God audibly told me that I was his son and he was well pleased with me, I'd say, all right, take me now. I can't do anything else. This is, this is as good as it gets. Jesus probably could have done that, but he didn't do that because Jesus knew what his mission was. He knew what he was here to do. You see, Jesus did what he often does throughout Scripture, and he taught us a lesson by example. So Jesus doesn't go out and tell all his friends about this awesome thing. What does he do? He goes out to the desert or deserted place. And he doesn't get a celebratory meal. No, he fasts for 40 days. And then after that, he gets tempted by Satan. Not once, not twice, but three times. And I like to think of these, these temptations that Satan has provided as more like offers. Right? You get an offer, and then you get a chance to respond to those offers. Or to that offer. And that's what Jesus got to do. And see, but the thing about these offers is that Satan has been doubling down each time with each offer. And by this time, this third time, he's trying to play that ultimate trump card. You see, Jesus' mountaintop moment looks a little bit different than ours. So let's look at it. Matthew chapter 4, verse 8 begins with saying, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to them, or said to him, I will give you all of these things if you will fall down and worship me. I will give you all these things if you fall down and worship me. We'll stop there. So the, the devil takes Jesus to a very high mountain and he shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor. And he'll give them to him. He offers them to him under one condition. All Jesus has to do is fall down and worship Satan. I mean, it seems like a pretty bad idea to me. But that's the kind of the nice thing about being on this side of history is that we have the hindsight to see how Jesus responded. But, but put yourself in that position. Put yourself in that, on that mountain and, and somebody's offering you everything that you've ever wanted. You're seeing it all right in front of you and everything, and it all can be yours. You don't have to wait. You don't have to go through all those hardships or that hard work or waking up at 5 a.m. in the morning to get it. You can have it right now. And I think the thing that we need to think about here is something that Jesus was dealing with in that moment or Satan was trying to pry at and something that we deal with right now is this thing that I like to call instant gratification. See, within our society now, we can get pretty much anything we want within a day or a week, and probably minutes, honestly, if we wanted to go to the store and get it. We can get almost anything that we want within a matter of minutes. And this, this thing of instant gratification is like when we don't get what we want in the matter of time, we'll go to great lengths to make sure that we use another source or we run over anybody that is in our, gets in our way to get it. We see it every day, and it's something that we deal with now. And it's also something that Jesus was dealing with, something that the devil was trying to pry at. Like, hey, you don't have to do all this stuff. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to talk to people. You don't have to heal people. I'll just give it to you right now. You see, that's the other thing we have to remember is that the result of what the devil was offering Jesus was a good thing, right? Jesus being Lord of all is what the end of his mission results in. It's a good thing, right? It's a good thing to get there. And here's the devil saying, I'll give it to you all right now. You see, the thing that we have to remember is that as Christ followers, we are targets of the enemy. 
And this is one of the most deceptive ways that he can attack us by showing us something really good, but then we have to do something really bad to get there. You know, maybe this is a disclaimer to you. Maybe, maybe you are aware of the scheme, but I'm here to tell you that if this is something that you are faced with, you have been faced with, you probably will be faced with at some point, we need to make sure that we're taking every step we have with care. Every step needs to be within the steps, within the ways of God. And even if it's the harder choice, even if we have to wait for it, even if we have to go through a lot of hardships to get there, we can't, as I call it, we can't put the cart in front of the horse. It's not the way it works. But I think on top of that, there's something deeper that's happening here. You know, think, think of it this way, right? So Satan has upped the ante each time with each temptation. It starts with turning stones into bread. And he graduates to, hey, I can actually give you all these kingdoms. All their splendor and all their authority on earth. You can do it. And actually, I like what uh, Luke says in chapter 4. This is uh, Luke's account of the uh, temptations of Jesus. But he says this in in verse 5, chapter 4, verse 5. So he says, so he took him up and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you their splendor and all this authority because it has been given over to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. If you then will worship me, all will be yours. You see that? I like how Luke adds the, he doesn't just say, these are the kingdoms and these are their splendor. He says, I'll give you the authority over them too. So Satan is up the ante with each time that he has tempted Jesus. And Jesus has constantly gone back to two weapons that he has. See, Jesus, in these two weapons that Jesus, the way that Jesus fights Satan, are weapons that are available to us as well. They are Scripture and also the power of the Holy Spirit. And he uses these two things that are available to us as Christ followers to engage in this battle. And we get to see it in Matthew 4, chapter 10, where it says... Uh, this, this is Jesus' response. Then Jesus told him, he said, Go away, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. So the first thing he does is he says, Go away. How often is it just so simple for us that we need to say, Go away. Go away, Satan. So he starts there. But then he goes to Scripture. He starts with Scripture, and again and again, Jesus uses Scripture to combat the schemes of Satan. All which, by the way, within these certain three temptations is a passage from Deuteronomy. And I like to think that Jesus was doing more here than just merely quoting Scripture. He was, he was giving an example of, of all the failures that had happened in the past, especially when we talk about Deuteronomy. So, you know, I like to think that Jesus was... Uh, showing us something that we needed to dig a little bit deeper to look at. So this is the thing. You see, you see that from the time of Adam and Eve, mankind had and has been choosing one of two things. We've been either choosing to worship and serve creation and be arrogant enough to believe that we are worthy of worship and service, or we've been chosen to worship God and serve him only. You see, you see it in the Garden of Eden, 
And you also see it in the desert when the Israelites are wandering for 40 years. Again and again, God provides. But when temptation arises or when hardships happen, they fold. They fold. Even Adam's sin, it was desiring to be like God. Desiring to have this knowledge of good and evil in a time where they weren't prepared to have it or receive it. God said, don't eat from that tree. But Eve went over to that tree, and that serpent, sure enough, was like, surely you won't die if you eat this. What he essentially was saying, surely God loves you enough to where he wouldn't want to hold back this knowledge from you. Surely God wouldn't let you die because he loves you, right? See, Adam, not Adam, but Eve's problem at first was that she didn't say, go away, Satan. (laughs) But then she chose to engage and lo and behold, the fall happened. When Moses and the Israelites were leaving Egypt, literally being led by God himself, they get stuck by the Red Sea. And they're, all of a sudden, the Egyptians are hot on their tail. And what do they do? Moses, you, did you just take us out here to kill us? We'll just, we'll just go back and be slaves again. They instantly fold. You know, they... They say they would rather die back in slavery than, than to be there. We see them groan about not having food. And what does God do? God provides them manna from heaven. We see them groan about being thirsty, not having water. What do they do? Well, what does God do? He, he brings water out of a rock. Probably the worst thing the Israelites did, though, was they did this, uh, just, just this minor thing of fashioning a golden calf so that they would have something to worship because they got impatient about Moses not coming back down from the mountain. And the thing about this golden calf, the thing that uh, I've always found interesting is that they fashioned it out of the things that they plundered from the Egyptians. So something that God had provided for them for their, their prosperity, for their wealth, what did they do? Well, they fashioned a golden calf out of it. They used something that God provided for them for the wrong purpose. And we all know what, well, most of us should know exactly what happened to the golden calf. It, it got destroyed. So... But the thing that we need to remember about that, the thing that we need to focus on, is the fact that the Israelites probably thought they were doing something good when they fashioned that golden calf. This side of history, we see that it's not a good thing, right? But they probably thought they were doing something good. They probably even believed the lie that, hey, we're worshiping, so that pleases God. But it wasn't. You see, that's, that's why this third temptation of Jesus can be so dangerous, is because Right on the other thing that we talked about is a good thing. Having the knowledge of good and evil is a good thing so that we don't fall into temptation. Being free from slavery is a good thing. Having all your meals and water provided for you by God is a good thing. Jesus ruling and reigning over the kingdoms of the earth is a good thing. You see, to understand Jesus' response, we have to understand that Jesus was coming from a long line of Adams that had failed again and again to keep God's commands, to keep the ways of God. And Jesus knew that his purpose was to be that true Adam that remained steadfast in the ways of God. No matter what came after him or anything like that, Jesus understood this, and that's what we need to understand, is that Jesus understood that the worship of the devil, while it accomplished his mission, was not true worship. It wasn't true worship. So that begs the question for us of what is true worship and Luckily for us, we can go to Scripture, and it tells us what true worship is. We're going to be in Romans chapter 12, 
starting in verse 1, and this is what it says, starting in verse 1. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. And then it continues and says, Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. So right there it tells us our true worship. And in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. So I want to break down these passages separately, uh, starting with verse 1. So let's start at the beginning. It says, in view of the mercies of God. In view of the mercies of God. Do you guys know what mercy means? Like the definition of mercy? The definition of mercy is mercy by definition is compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. Mercy is compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. So the mercies of God are, are the fact that we have sinned against the holy God and we have no right to even take our next breath, but, but God allows it. So in view of that, in view that we don't have the right to even take our next breath, what should we do? We should present our bodies as a living sacrifice. We should present our bodies. What, what does that even mean? What does it mean to present our bodies as a living sacrifice? Well, that means that everything we do, everything we say, every action, every inaction, every tweet, every social media post, every sign that we put in our yard, every gift that we give, every breath that we breathe should be forgotten. Period. They're not, they should not be for us. It should be something that we can take and we sacrifice at the altar of God and not at the altar of our self, selfish ambitions. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. And he continues in verse 2, says, Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. We can break it down a lot of things with this verse, but I want to focus on just a couple of things. So I love the wording here of transform. So it says, Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed. By the renewing of your mind. It doesn't just say, be con- do not be conformed to this age, but be changed by the renewing of your mind. It says being transformed, which means that something deeper is happening here, and that something is, this transformation is continual growth. Whether you are six or 60, whether you've been a Christian for a day or way longer than I've been alive, we are still not done. We're not done learning yet. We have to be diligent. We have to stay focused on the prize at the end of the race, which is eternal dwelling with Jesus and helping others have that same eternal dwelling with him. So how do we, how do, we do this? How do we, how do we stay diligent? How do we not be conformed to this age but be transformed by the renewing of minds? How do we know what the, the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God is? It's this thing right here. This thing is the Bible. We have to open it. We have to read it. We have to constantly be in it, even when we don't want to. Even if we've read the thing from cover to cover, God still reveals new stuff to me every time I read the same passage over and over and over again. 
We have to stay diligent in his word. And we have to use the same things that Jesus used when he was tempted in the desert. Jesus was offered all of the kingdoms in this world and the glory of all everything that came with it. And he didn't have to do anything other than, than bow down and worship Satan. But see, Jesus understood one thing. He understood that there was only one that is worthy of that kind of worship. There's only one who's worthy of that kind of praise. Jesus understood what I want us to walk away with today, which is this. That true worship of God demands self-sacrifice. True worship of God demands self-sacrifice. You know, when Jesus was on this earth, he submitted in every way to the will of the Father, his Father, and our Heavenly Father. Jesus knew what his mission was, and he was clearly focused on it. And the other thing about Jesus is that, sure, he was fully God, but Jesus was also fully man, which meant that he felt like we do. He bled like we do. He wept like we do. It doesn't change the fact of who he is and that he is fully God, but, but it does give us this, this, this great pleasure of having a, a Lord and a Savior in Jesus who can be sympathetic to our hardships because he's been here with us before. You know, this is the thing that God could have just sat back in heaven and let us all go to hell which is what we deserve. But I am so glad and so grateful that he didn't do that. I'm so glad that God sent his one and only son to die for us. I'm so glad that God's mercies are new every day. And here's the deal that makes no sense is that we don't deserve it, but God offers it freely. He offers a relationship with him. He offers eternal life to us if we walk in his ways. We don't deserve it. Friend, if someone hasn't told you this lately, and this is something that I have to constantly preach to myself, is that you are owed nothing. You are owed nothing. So I am so thankful that we have a Savior in Jesus and the Lord in Jesus who paid everything for us. He paid everything. He paid the price of our sin. He paid the price of our shame. He defeated Satan once and for all on that cross. And then when he rose again on the third day, Jesus died not only for righteous people, but he died for sinners, sinners like you and sinners like me. But why would he do that? Why would he do that? Why would God send his only son? It's because he loves us that much. He loves us that much. He knew that we were lost. He knew that we were a ship without a sail. And we needed one. He knew that we, that, we, that we were here, God was here, and there was nothing in between. And we needed this, something to bridge this chasm that was between us. So he sent God because he loves us so much that he wants to have eternal dwelling with us where we get the opportunity to praise him forever. See, he understands what true worship is. And Jesus understands especially what true worship is because true worship of God it man's self-sacrifice. And Jesus, that's exactly what he did. But in, so in light of this, what, what shall we say? Shall we walk around being all gloomy because we don't deserve anything, because we're, we're not worthy of the mercies of God? No. No, because the thing that we have to remember is that, like I said, God's mercies are new every day. And you have to understand this, is that we are fighting from victory. We said this 
probably every week, we're fighting from victory. We're not fighting for victory. It's already been won. Jesus has already won. He defeated sin. He defeated, he defeated death. He's already been victorious, and he'll come back again one day to finish his job. We remember we are fighting from victory, not for victory. And one day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And that is good news. But we're not there yet. There's still work to be done. There are still lives, eternal lives, at stake here. See, we have to keep our guard up. We have to keep up this fight. We have our swords, right? We have our weapons, our, our Bibles. We have the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling us if we follow Christ. But we have to keep our guard up because the devil is going around roaming like a roaring lion. He seeks to kill, steal, and destroy. And here's the good thing. If we have made Jesus over Lord over our lives, not just Savior, we have the power of the Holy Spirit within us to help drive the devil away. We have this, these weapons that Jesus used. And make no mistake, right, Satan will attack you. And most times, it might not even feel like an attack. Most times, you might have the prize at the end, and you don't have to go through everything. We must be able to discern when that happens what is actually happening. And if you don't know how to use your Bible, then you are fighting with one arm tied behind your back. Open this thing up. Read it. Get with other people and read it with them. Join a community group if you haven't done this. Because, guys, while Jesus fought alone, we can't fight alone. We are better together. Well, I know that's, that's not just one of our core values here at FCC. Like That's something we believe, and it's something that Scripture proves, that we are better together. So join the fight. Engage in the fight the way that Jesus did it, and do it in a way that honors God. Because God alone is worthy of our worship. Only God is worthy of our worship. Only God is worthy of our praise. Not this world, not us, nobody, Him alone. Let's stand. I'm going to pray, and the band's going to come out, and we're going to sing. Father, we thank you so much that, that you would love us so much that you would send your son Jesus to, to give us an example of a life uh, that is lived for you. God, to um, allow us to, to show us an example of when the devil plots and schemes and seeks to uh, kill, steal, and destroy that, that you have given us weapons to engage in this battle. God, you have given us the sword of the Spirit, which is the Bible. God, you've given us the power and the dwelling of your Holy Spirit to, to where we don't have to do this alone. To where, God, you alone are worthy and you can save us. God, I pray that, that as, we, as we leave this building today, as we, as we go out, God, that our worship would be bent to you. God, that you would tune our hearts to praise you throughout the day. That you would give us the strength when we need it, God. That you would allow us to discern the evil plots that are going on all around us. That you allow us to engage in this spiritual battle that we are in, God. Because you are worthy of all the pain, all the hardship, and everything that comes along with following you because we have the eternal prize of that one day 
we will be with you. We will be singing your praises forever, God. And I pray that as we sing your praises right now, God, that they would be pleasing to you. We love you, we praise you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast by First Church of Christ in Bluffton, Indiana. For more information, visit FCCFamily.com.